Good morning. My name is Chuck Armstrong, and it is a pleasure to be back at Grace Church. Uh, I think I first visited in early May, and so hopefully sometime Mark will invite me out in the summertime, too. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the warm welcome and for the hospitality of Mark and Leslie and their family. Um, to, this morning's scripture will be read from Mark 8, verses 14 through 38. It's printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And Jesus went on with his disciples, excuse me, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot happening in these verses, and it probably wouldn't be much of a stretch to take them and do an entire sermon series on them, each week unpacking a few verses here and there, seeing what Mark is writing about in this story. But I think it's important, actually, to consider all of these verses as one story, as one single passage. Because what Mark is actually doing here is he's connecting different events, events that we think are completely separated. But he helps us see them come together as one story. And the center of this one story is a unique miracle, the healing of the blind man in two stages. I hope that by looking at this miracle in the context of the broader passage, 
that we might be able to begin to realize the blindness that we all have in our own lives. Blindness that can lead to fear, that can lead us to placing priorities on the wrong things. In fact, I think it's safe to say that this is something Christians and non-Christians alike struggle with. Being so blind that we might place our hope in earthly, shakable things. That we look to identify ourselves with a job that we might lose. That we look to identify ourselves with relationships that we know will eventually come to an end. That we look to identify ourselves with salaries that, for the most part, fluctuate outside of our control. At the core of this passage, though, is hope for all of that. Hope for this blindness in our lives. It's easy to think that we can come up with a cure. But here in the miracle in verses 23 through 26, we see the unshakable, perfect healing power of Jesus Christ. Power that not only heals our blindness, but actually shows us what we should be doing with our sight. And so as we look at these verses and what Mark is doing, I want to unpack three points this morning. First, we'll consider the spiritual blindness in the verses and the spiritual blindness we have. And second, I'd like us to, con- to look at the perfect cure that we're presented with. And finally, the third point will focus on the amazing freedom that we are given with this newfound sight. So one, the spiritual blindness. Two, the perfect cure. And three, the amazing freedom of sight. So first, the spiritual blindness. And when I say spiritual blindness, I'm not actually talking about the blind man yet. Not yet. Even before we get to the miracle of Jesus healing the blind man, we see the spiritual blindness in Jesus' own disciples. The first chunk of this passage, verses 14 through 21, we find Jesus and his disciples on a boat, likely somewhere in the Sea of Galilee. And on the boat, the disciples realized they forgot to bring food with them, except one loaf of bread. Like you and I would probably be, they were a bit frantic. How are we going to survive this trip with just one loaf of bread split between all of us? Unlike us, though, the situation that the disciples are in is a bit unique. They've already witnessed some miraculous things from their leader, including Jesus not only feeding 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish, but he fed another crowd, that time 4,000 people, with just seven loaves. And not only did they witness these miracles, but they were right in the middle of them, giving Jesus the loaves of bread, handing the food to him, watching what he was doing, and then seeing how much food was left over. So, you have to consider the situation as a whole in that context. The disciples have seen Jesus feed nearly 10,000 people with just a little bit of food over the course of a couple of, of events. And now here they are on a boat with the guy who did all of that, with a loaf of bread, and they're distressed. They're worried about not having enough food. They believe that only they can control their circumstances, and they fail to see the miraculous power that is right in front of them. And what does Jesus do? He reminds them of what he had already done. He calls out the feeding of the 5,000. He calls out the feeding of the 4,000. He makes them tell him how much extra food they picked up after each occasion. And then he says, do you still not understand, in verse 21. He recognizes the spiritual blindness that exists in his disciples. As I've been working on this sermon and reflecting on it over the uh, course of the last couple of weeks, uh, Bob Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, which got me to go through his catalog and listen listen to his music. And through that process, I came across one of his songs, Precious Angel. The song is on his album, Slow Train Coming, which came out in August of 1979, and is actually the first album that Bob Dylan released after becoming a born-again Christian. And though I never pretend to completely interpret what Dylan means in his lyrics, I do think that some songs 
stand on their own, and I think Precious Angel is one such song. The chorus finds Dylan repeating the line, shine your light, shine your light on me. And he wraps up the chorus with, you know I just couldn't make it by myself. I'm a little too blind to see. I think it's interesting that he starts with shine your light on me, and then he ends by admitting that he's too blind to see it. As I think about that song, I think it's actually reminiscent of the disciples. They witnessed Christ and his miracles. They've seen him feed thousands upon thousands of people with very little food. They've already seen him walk on water, and yet they keep misunderstanding him. They want Christ to shine his light on them, and yet they're just a little too blind to fully see it right in front of them. And that's not just reminiscent of Jesus' disciples, right? How often in our own lives are we confronted with the love of Christ, and yet we're a little too blind to fully see it? maybe in a situation or in a friend. This idea of spiritual blindness, too, is not only something you can find in this passage, not just something you can find in the Gospels or the New Testament, uh, but turn to the Old Testament. Take the story of Elisha. He is a prophet of the Lord. He was close with the king of Israel. And in one situation, in 2 Kings chapter 6, Israel is in the middle of a war. And not surprisingly, Elisha's servant is scared. He's terrified. Recognizing that, Elisha prays to God and asks him to open the eyes of his servant so that he may see. Here we have a person who is so terrified that Elisha responds by praying for his eyes to be opened. The servant's blindness has caused him to be fearful. The Lord hears Elisha's prayer and opens the servant's eyes. And with that newfound sight, the servant saw chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. The servant was so blind to the reality of God's power. He was blind to the fact that God would protect Israel. And once his eyes were open, he literally saw God's protection manifest itself on earth. Though we might not find ourselves in a situation like that, like Elisha and his servant, we can still likely relate to the idea of blindness in our own lives and the resulting fear or frustration that might come from it. For me personally, I know what it's like to be face-to-face with God and still be blind to his power, thinking that I might be in control, that I might be the one who's in charge of my own plans, much like the disciples in this morning's passage. Well, we're in the middle of this story in Mark, and instead of neatly wrapping up this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, after Jesus says, do you still not understand, Mark interrupts us. There really is no apparent conclusion to that situation. So we move forward in the passage, and we'll move forward to the second point. So first we looked at the spiritual blindness in these verses, And now we look for the perfect cure for that blindness. Jesus and his disciples arrive at Bethsaida, and a blind man is brought to him for healing. An important thing to take note of first is the fact that this is the first time Jesus heals a blind man in Mark's gospel. And this miracle, this is the only miracle of its kind in all of Jesus' life. That is to say, it's the only miracle where Jesus' healing is not instantaneous. And it's also the only miracle in which Jesus asks the person he is healing, Are you healed? So, Jesus takes the blind man, he spits in his eyes, which you and I might hear that and be a little grossed out or a little taken back, but uh, scholars have debated the significance of this uh, for a long time. Realistically, it was likely meant as a medical tool. Uh, The blind man's eyes were probably very dry and dirty, and Jesus, recognizing the pain that he was probably in and the discomfort that he was in, spit on his eyes and to, to to, to cool them to sort of uh, soften them up. So he spits in his eyes, he lays his hands 
on the blind man, and he asks, do you see anything? The original audience hearing this would have no doubt been as surprised at this process as we are. Those who first heard the Gospel of Mark already knew the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and they already knew the amazing power that he wielded. And yet, here we have the Son of God who could have snapped his fingers and said, you can see. We see him do the exact opposite. We see him basically ask if his miracle worked. And we know that even with the spitting and the touching and the asking, that Jesus didn't fully cure the blind man's illness. In verse 25, we find out Jesus then puts his hands on the man's eyes again, and it is at that moment that he is fully healed and his sight has been completely restored. The historical significance of these verses is huge. If this was a mere story, a fairy tale dreamt up by a guy named Mark who was trying to invent a religion, there would have been absolutely no reason to include this in the gospel. Consider it. You have Jesus Christ, the leader of your religion, the Son of God, and you're going to make up a story like this, a story that on its surface seems to highlight the inadequacy of his healing power. I don't think you would do that. So instead, we should take this for what it is, a historical account of Jesus not inadequately healing a blind man, but perfectly healing a blind man. And I use the word perfectly because this event serves as much more than just a singular healing act. This act in itself is a parable. We generally recognize parables as stories that Jesus tells to a crowd, something that imparts wisdom on a given question or situation. Jesus usually gives a parable in response to a question, and he often uses that parable to compare God's power to something that the audience would have understood. But here, Jesus' act is itself a parable for his disciples and a growing crowd to witness. This is where the beauty of these verses as one singular passage come into play. Consider the first part of this passage. We have the disciples who are so clearly spiritually blind to the reality and the power of Jesus Christ. They've witnessed miracles, and yet they worry about having enough food. So what does Mark do? He interrupts those verses with the healing of a blind man. And then all of a sudden, we're brought back to Jesus talking with his disciples, beginning at verse 27. And what happens? The disciples' eyes are opened wider than they were before the healing act. So wide, in fact, that this is the first time that Peter confesses Jesus to be Christ, to be the Messiah. But, is Peter's blindness fully cured? A few verses later, after we're told, Jesus explains to his disciples about how he must suffer and die and then rise from the dead... Peter rebukes him. Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter has seen Jesus feed thousands of people with little food, has seen him walk on water, and now has seen him heal a blind man. He confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, and yet when confronted with the reality of what it really means for Jesus to be the Messiah, he can't take it, and he rebukes him. And you might be asking yourself, where's the hope in this? I thought you were giving us hope for our spiritual blindness, and here we have a disciple who still can't fully see the power of Christ right in front of him. What's going on? Consider the healing act of the blind man. It's a miracle that features two distinct aspects. The man is fully blind, and then he's halfway cured, and then he's fully cured. Now consider the disciples' spiritual blindness. They are fully blind to the power of Christ. Then their eyes seem to be opened as Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, But we can see they are not fully cured as Peter refuses to stand by and listen to Jesus say that he must be killed. And that is why this is the perfect cure for our own spiritual blindness. 
When I think of our spiritual blindness being healed not in one fell swoop, I think of this miracle, but I also think that it is represented in the washing of Jesus' disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Here, as the Son of God is on his knees washing the feet of those who serve him, he tells Peter that the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. So here you have Christ explaining the purpose of washing his disciples' feet by focusing on two distinct aspects, the foot washing and the bath. The bath is a one-time thing. I think it's safe to say that it represents Christ's salvation being freely offered to sinners based on absolutely nothing that we have done or could do or could accomplish, but completely based on his grace. And that is unrepeatable, and that is why Christ says the one who is bathed does not need another bath. But we also know that if we have been offered the salvation and we've accepted it, that through our regenerated hearts, we are always seeking Jesus. And this is the foot washing. Though we've been bathed and have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, our feet need to be constantly cleansed by Jesus and Jesus alone. Though we've been offered this amazing salvation, we still look toward the example of Jesus Christ and the power of the cross in our own lives. That makes me think of Jesus healing the blind man in two stages. Jesus could have snapped his fingers and said to his disciples when he was washing their feet, your feet are clean, go on. But he didn't. He got down on his hands and his knees, and he went through the undeniably humbling act of washing their dirty feet. With a blind man in this morning's passage, Jesus does something miraculous. He gives a blind man his sight. And even though it's not fully cured at first, it's still pretty miraculous. I've never seen someone do anything even close to that. But then he does something even more miraculous, and he fully heals the blind man. This is the hope that the disciples see and that the disciples have, and that we as Christians have as well. Though we may be blind to the reality of God's power, we can be given sight, the salvation that is so freely given to us, not based on our works or our deeds or our attitudes, but based on the grace of Jesus Christ. And if we keep looking toward Christ and toward the cross, looking to Christ and not to ourselves, our spiritual blindness can be fully cured. Even when Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, Look, Peter, I've done a lot of miracles. You've seen them. You've been here. How much more should I do? I'm done. No, Jesus, out of his unbelievable love for Peter, turns the tables and takes Peter aside and admonishes him. And what's his response to Peter in verse 33? Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are not looking to Christ, but you are looking to yourself to cure your blindness. Following that, Jesus turns to his disciples and the crowd that is formed around them. And following this perfect, though wholly unique miracle, he charges the audience with the freedom of what real sight means, what spiritual sight brings with it. And that brings us to our third and final point, the amazing freedom of sight. After he gives Peter that eye-opening piece of advice to set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man, He qualifies it with a following call. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. Deny yourself and take up your cross. This is significant. This phrase is recorded not just in Mark's gospel, but also Matthew's and Luke's. And while it's a weighty statement for us to hear in 2016, the context in which it was first said, the first century, makes it astronomically more significant. 
You probably know this, but in Jesus' time, the cross was not a symbol of hope. It was a symbol of humiliation and death, a symbol tied to the worst criminals, a symbol that all of society knew exactly what it stood for. So here you have Jesus, someone whose disciples are only beginning to realize is the true Messiah, telling them, and a crowd that is forming, which is important because this is not meant just for Jesus' disciples, but it's meant for all, he's telling them that to follow him is to be associated with the cross. But we know that being associated with the cross means something far different from being associated with a criminal or a humiliating death. And that's the power of Christ. Power so strong and so massive that it can take a symbol, an ugly symbol like the cross, and completely transform it, making it into something that represents love and mercy and sacrifice. What does it look like in today's society for us to see clearer, spiritually speaking, in our own lives? What it looks like to carry the cross of love and sacrifice and mercy, denying ourselves. In a recent column in the New York Times entitled The Power of a Dinner Table, David Brooks describes a family in Washington, D.C. that opens its home to friends and strangers in need every single week. Brooks actually regularly joins this group for dinner, and he tells an amazing story about how this one home is essentially denying itself to transform the community around them. In this column, he writes, Each meal we demonstrate our commitment to care for one another. I took my daughter once, and on the way out she said, That's the warmest place I can ever imagine. The power of this experience rests solely in the relationships that are built in that home. As Brooks notes, and it seems especially significant given the election season that we're in, the problems facing this country are deeper than the labor participations rate. And he names a few other problems that we talk about. But he says the problem is a crisis of solidarity, a crisis of segmentation, spiritual degradation, and intimacy. When God cures our spiritual blindness, we don't have our eyes open, and then that's it. We are called to deny ourselves and pick up our crosses. This is the aspect of our salvation that we keep returning to Jesus for. It's the foot washing in John chapter 13. One theologian read verse 34 from this morning's passage and notes, Just as we are lost through loving ourselves, so we are found by denying ourselves. Love of self was the ruin of the first man. That is Adam in the Garden of Eden. You see, the opposite of denying ourselves is loving ourselves, of focusing on meeting our needs above all else. Consider Jesus' life. It wasn't about meeting his demands. In just a couple of chapters later, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. His life wasn't about his own needs. It was about meeting the needs of others, of you and me, of sinners. This is the transformative love that we experience when our eyes are opened to the spiritual reality of what it means to know and follow Jesus. Jean-Baptiste Vianney was a 19th century priest, and he once said, the Christian lives in the midst of crosses as the fish lives in the sea. I think it's safe to say that that statement is truer today than when it was first said a couple of hundred years ago. We have so many distractions in our lives and so many crosses that we deem appropriate to carry. But there is one cross for Christians, the one we pick up, after putting the needs of those around us before our own needs, looking to Jesus' own life as the ultimate example of what that means. It's not easy, and it's not an overnight solution, but by striving to deny ourselves, 
instead of love ourselves, to put Christ at the center of the decisions we make, make of the relationships we have in our lives, of the work that we do day in and day out, we will see clearer than we have before. Imagine being Elisha's servant in Second Kings. You're nervous. You're preparing for battle. You see the enemy, and you're scared. The man you are serving recognizes this. He lifts up a prayer to God, and your eyes are opened, and your spiritual blindness is cured, and you can clearly see the power of God. This would almost certainly be terrifying at first, but likely it left the servant struck with a sense of awe that he had never experienced before. Imagine that freedom that he felt. Here he was, scared to death that the Lord wouldn't protect Israel. His life was consumed by fear. And thanks to Elisha, a man who clearly knew what it meant to deny himself in favor of serving God and God's people, the servant's fear disappeared. His blindness was cured. What would it look like if we gave our relationship with Jesus Christ the kind of attention that Elisha gave to serving and trusting God? What would it look like if we gave our relationship with Jesus Christ the same attention we give to politics, to our jobs, to social media, to whatever crosses we might be carrying at the moment? What would it look like if we denied ourselves and allowed God to cure us of our spiritual blindness, freeing us to put him at the center of our lives, opening our eyes to his power? Consider that freedom, the freedom we find not in ourselves, but by denying ourselves, by looking to what has already been done and accomplished for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What would that look like? I think we'd see our communities transformed. I think we'd see our offices affected. Our relationships would be representative of what it looks like to put others' needs in front of our own. It would look like that home in Washington, D.C. Imagine if people looked at the Christian community and said, that's the warmest place I can ever imagine. That's what happens when we deny ourselves and we pick up our crosses to follow God. That is the reality of Christ's perfect power, power that not only heals our spiritual blindness, but actually calls us and frees us to use that sight for God's glory. The warmest place I can ever imagine. Imagine that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done for us that you sent your son uh, to this earth to suffer, to die in our name for our lives, Lord. Lord, we pray that your word would stir inside of us, that we would feel you and the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts, not just right now, not just as we leave, but this week, Lord, as we interact with friends and family and colleagues and coworkers, as we walk around town, as we enter our offices, Lord, that you would be at the center of those conversations, of those relationships, of our thoughts, of our actions. Lord, we thank you for the amazing sight that you offer to us. We pray that you would help us see you more clearly each and every day. Lord, we say all of these things. We lift them up to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.